All right, so again, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And as I mentioned when we started this study, uh, I gave you a brief overview of what these verses meant, uh, at least the way that I see them. And there's many interpretations, understandings of what some of these phrases, what these references mean. But in the end, I think all, um, all uh, conservative Christians, if you want to use that term, uh, solid commentators and theologians will look at this passage, even if they hold differing views, and say that Peter's point here was to show his brethren that when Christ suffered, uh, that was not a mistake. It was by design. It was for a great purpose. It resulted in great blessing, and he was laying that out. And it ultimately resulted in victory, and it resulted in Christ being exalted and, and glorified. Uh, and so that we can see that as Christians and understand the same thing about our situations of suffering. Now, within those verses, there are dozens of various views on different topics. And so, I, 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 um, as I mentioned, I don't want to get into uh, a very detailed explanation of all of these, uh, but I am going to give you various views. Beginning this morning, this is where we really kind of get into um, some of the confusion of the passage, uh, if you will. Take a look at page two. We've already covered on page one the finality of Jesus' suffering, uh, and that was that Christ uh, suffered, and he did so once for all. He died for our sins. We see that in chapter three, verse 18. For Christ also died for the sins, or for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And that's where we stopped. And so we said that Christ's work was perfect. It was finished. Uh, there is nothing else that needs to be accomplished. We know that three days later, he will rise from the grave. But as far as his messianic mission and his uh, dying on our behalf, his suffering, his sacrifice, all of that is finished on the cross. And that's why Christ makes that statement, uh, it is finished. And he does that for a great purpose. And so we saw in verse 18 that the purpose was to make those who were unjust, just. The unrighteous, righteous. And as he does that, he brings us to God. He, he bridges that gap. He removes the barrier between man and God that we place there because of sin. Uh, as a human race, we rebelled against God, and when we sinned, there was no longer the fellowship with our Creator. And so that separation had to be removed. Well, as we continue in verse 18, we see here, uh, having been put to uh, death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also, or in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And so we're, we're not going to cover all the way through verse 22, but we will continue in verse uh, 18 and then move on through verse uh, 19 and part of verse 20 this morning, or at least that's the goal. If you look here on page 2 and you look at the first uh, heading there, victory and Jesus' suffering, this is what we see in verses the, the second part of verse 18 through verse 20. Uh, now, we looked at the meaning of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and, and we will be focusing on that again this morning as we celebrate and observe the Lord's table together. 
Uh, and that's a pretty straightforward uh, text for us to look at. He died for sins once for all, uh, the just for the unjust, he brought us to God. There really isn't uh, much confusion or argument or debate about what that means, at least not with conservative you know, scholars. We look at that and say Christ died on our behalf, he brought us salvation, he made us righteous, he brought us to God, and, and, and that's what it means. Uh, but once we get into the second part of verse 18 through basically the rest of the text, um, well, this is what Martin Luther says if you look at this text box here. It says, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. You know, if you get someone like Luther who says, um, I'm not quite sure exactly what Peter meant, not that Luther is, you know, the most brilliant scholar, that we look to him as, you know, second to the Bible. But, but when you look and see that people throughout history have been scratching their heads and, and saying, well, what about this and what about that and have you considered this and what about this word or, or what about this aspect of grammar or syntax or whatever it might be, there are a lot of questions when it comes to these uh, passages and, and a number of differing views. Uh, and so as we look at this, whether we're, we're looking at the, the proclamation concerning Christ's body and spirit, his proclamation uh, after he left the cross in his spirit, uh, the visitation uh, of looking at uh, who was the audience and where was this audience and what was his proclamation, there are literally dozens of views. If you look at all of these issues, dozens and dozens of views that you kind of have to, to mill through to see which views make the most sense when you look at the text and when you look at not just 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, but when you're looking at the rest of Scripture. And you have to do a lot of cross-referencing or analogy of the faith to see what does the Bible say and how can we make sense of this passage. But again, we don't want to get lost in all of that. Peter is, is showing us this morning that there is great uh, purpose and great blessing in suffering, even in suffering, and Christ accomplished that on our behalf. If you look here at the first uh, uh, part as we kind of break this down, we're looking at the, the distinction of Jesus' spirit. And that means it was, it was separate from his body. Okay, as we go to verse 18, the second part, uh, we see here that um, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Now I just have one small paragraph on this, but uh, as you study, if you really want to get into it, I mean there are, are journal articles and dissertations, all sorts of things written just on that phrase. And we're not going to bog you down with all of that, uh, but I'm going to give you the two main uh, ideas of what this means, and not all of the pros and cons uh, of those ideas. But if you look at this, and, and you're reading uh, various commentators and digests, the two main ideas here is when you're talking about he was put to death in the flesh, uh, there really isn't any debate about that. He died on the cross. We understand that. Peter states that. Paul states that in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, we understand that Christ physically died on the cross, and that's been something we've come back to a number of times uh, studying 1 Peter. Christ suffered to the point of death, even death on a cross, as we are reminded of in uh, Philippians chapter 2. So he was put to death, but what does it mean that he was made alive in the spirit? Okay. And so as we look at this, the two main views are that, that it's a reference to his resurrection, that, that this is a, ref, a reference to the Holy Spirit, uh, his involvement in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's how he is made alive in the spirit or alive by the spirit. 
that the Holy Spirit here is in view and that we are to understand that Peter is pointing to the resurrection of Christ, uh, that his, his body is dead, but he is resurrected by the Holy Spirit, by his power and his authority, and in that way, he is alive in the Spirit. And so that is certainly a valid um, option there. We also see here that when we're talking about this distinction of the Spirit, there is something that is known as a quickening. And uh, many commentators look at this and say, this is not referring to the resurrection of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's a number of reasons for that. They would look at the, the absence of an article before the word spirit. And, and when you look at Holy Spirit throughout the Greek text, you would find an article that points to um, this Holy Spirit. Here, you don't have that. And so they say this is more a reference to the human spirit of Jesus Christ. And then they will look at a, a distinction between flesh and spirit and say if, if, if Peter is saying his flesh was dead but his spirit is alive, it's his human flesh, his human body, and therefore his human spirit, that humanity of Christ that is the, the, um, um, the non-physical, that is what is alive and there's a separation of those two parts of Christ or aspects of Christ. That his body was still on the cross, but then there is this quickening, his spirit is, is living, and his spirit then separates and goes to make this proclamation. And so those are kind of the two main views. And, and I, I can't tell you with certainty that I'm 100% on either view because they're both uh, valid views. Uh, I lean towards the quickening view that this is not a reference to resurrection. Resurrection has not happened yet. Uh, it's something that will happen when you see his body and he rises and he says, you know, look at me, I'm, you know, flesh and bone and he's there, you know, appearing to his brethren. Um, because of that distinction with flesh and spirit uh, and then the fact that there's no, uh, that, that article before spirit, it seems like that maybe there's, uh, I think, a little more evidence for what they call the quickening as opposed to resurrection. But there are good scholars on both ends of the spectrum there. And so whatever view... Uh, it is between those two. There, there's no injustice that's being done to the doctrine of Christ or, or salvation or, or, or the inerrancy of Scripture. It's just something that we have to wrestle with, and we don't quite know exactly what it means. Uh, but we do know that his spirit was alive, and his spirit went to make proclamation. Um, another point that uh, those who hold to the quickening view uh, would bring up is that when Christ is on the cross, remember, he, he is separated from the Father. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's bearing the sins of mankind. He has our sins placed upon himself, and at that moment, there's the separation. In a sense, it's like he's dead to God. We know that Jesus doesn't die, and he bears no guilt. But in that way, he was being treated as a sinner, and God's wrath was upon him. And so some see the statement in Luke 23, 46, where he says, into you know, my hands I commit my spirit. It's kind of that, that right before he dies, right before that quickening, now he's paid the price. He's paid it in full. The wrath of God is satisfied, and now he is then entrusted to God, and his spirit is, in a sense, alive to God once again where prior to that, he was bearing the sins of man. So again, we can't be 100% sure. We know that Jesus rises in victory on the third day. And so we can't uh, look at either one and say it's, it's, a, it's a slam dunk for either view. But those are the two main views. But as long as we understand that we see here Christ did physically die on the cross, but his spirit was very much alive. 
and he went to this, this prison to make proclamation, and I believe it is a proclamation of victory. So let's take a look at, at that next point. His body is there on the cross, and, and his spirit, whether it's a, a resurrection or it's a quickening, uh, his spirit is free to travel. He's not stuck on the cross. Uh, and as he does, he travels into um, this prison, this underworld prison. We often think of, of the place of death as being the underworld. And so he goes there for the purpose of making a proclamation. And when we look at proclamation, it's, it's the same word where we, where we get the preaching or a herald, a proclaimer. And when you see it in the New Testament, it's often talking about the proclamation of God's word, the proclamation of the gospel. And so Jesus' spirit goes here to these spirits in prison, and he is making this victory proclamation. The body is on the cross, the spirit is very much alive, and he's making this statement that Satan has not won, that Jesus has the ultimate victory. Uh, again, as we're, we're looking at what Christ did, his, his earthly ministry is now finished. All that's left on the earth is there to, to rise from the dead on the third day. And we know he's here on the earth and he's with his disciples and, and then ascends you know, right before Pentecost. But if you're talking about his work to accomplish and to, to, to achieve and to uh, secure salvation, uh, I mean, as far as going to the cross is concerned, it's done. And so everything that led up to that, his birth, uh, his life as he's growing up and, and growing in favor with God and man, and he's proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming that the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he is, he is calling people to repentance and performing these attesting miracles uh, and, and then bearing our sins on the cross, it is all complete. And, and so as he is there, uh, he is making this proclamation that it truly is finished. Uh, some have seen this as perhaps Christ giving some kind of opportunity for salvation. Now, depending on the identity of these spirits, and we're going to get into that in just a bit, some see these spirits as human spirits who are being given basically a gospel proclamation uh, while they are there in prison, and that Christ went to give them kind of a second chance. They've died, now he's giving this proclamation. If they believe, then they would be released uh, I don't think that's the case. Even if these are human spirits, we understand that there's first, first comes death, then comes judgment. There is no second chance after uh, we leave this world. Today is the day of salvation. So this is not Jesus going and giving a second chance. And if the, the identity of these spirits uh, is not human, but demonic, then we understand from Scripture that salvation was never intended for fallen angels. They, they look into salvation. In fact, if we, if we go back to 1 Peter chapter, um, let's see. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter, I think it is chapter 1 and verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which uh, now you have been announced or which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now again, not to, to rehash all of that, but remember as we were looking at that passage, passage the angels are, are, are really amazed by salvation. It's not for them. It was never intended for them. There is no chance for fallen angels to be saved, to be redeemed. Salvation, the plan of salvation is to redeem fallen man, not angels. 
And so again, of Christ going back to chapter 3, if this proclamation that Christ is making uh, is to uh, imprisoned fallen angels or demons, this is absolutely not a gospel proclamation. And so we can pretty much rule out gospel proclamation with the intent to save uh, from the options there. And that's why we go back to this being a victory proclamation. Uh, that Christ is saying, it is finished. I have accomplished it. In fact, go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and then we'll take a look also at Romans chapter 16, uh, verse 20, to see what God says about the crushing of Satan and the, the victory of Christ over the evil one. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I'm sure you're very familiar with it. This is what we call the first gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so here as God is, is uh, proclaiming these curses upon those who were involved in the fall of man to Satan to, or the serpent to Eve to Adam, he tells the serpent that there's going to be enmity between you and her offspring. You're going to harm him. You're going to attack him. You will bruise him on the heel but he will crush your head. He will bruise your head. You're going to give him an injury, but he's going to give you the death blow. Now we see that. Look at Romans chapter 16. And as Paul is, is uh, wrapping up his letter to his brethren in Rome, he gives them a reminder of this great promise and this great victory that Christ will, in fact, crush Satan. You look at chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Okay. And so as we look at this, there is clear, clearly an understanding that Christ has victory. It was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, it is stated here in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. If we go all the way to the end and we look at Revelation, we see Satan is cast into an abyss for a thousand years and he's sealed up then he's released and then he tries to wage war and he is immediately dealt with and cast into the lake of fire for all eternity satan is crushed by christ and so what makes more sense when we're looking at the text and we're looking at, at the theology of it is that christ is making this proclamation of victory satan thought he won and, and satan tried everything he could to keep christ from the cross i mean if you think about uh, um uh, uh, King Herod killing all of the male children. You look at, at you know, Christ's own family members and his people rejecting him. The Jews calling for his crucifixion. Peter trying to, to convince Christ to not go to the cross. And he says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, so many things Satan tried to do to keep Christ from accomplishing salvation. And he failed. Christ went to the cross, he bore our sins, he died on our behalf, in our place. He, he, he was the reason why that veil was torn uh, and the separation between God and man was removed and it was finished and Christ was now proclaiming salvation's work is complete. And so as he's making this proclamation, I believe it is completely a victory proclamation. It is not a second chance for salvation for those who have already died in rejection of Christ. Well, let's talk about the identity of these spirits. It is important for us to consider the audience uh, that Christ is standing before and, and making this proclamation to. 
Uh, again, Peter doesn't tell us who they are. If you go back to verse Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, he was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which also, meaning he went in his spirit, and he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. We'll stop right there. And so here Peter gives us a little bit of, of uh, he gives us some clues, some hints as to who these, these spirits are. He doesn't come right out and say these are, and look at, these are some of the options here, by the way. If you look at, at option number one in that last paragraph, uh, spirits of deceased people in general who are waiting for judgment day. So people who have died, they have not received the salvation of God. They haven't believed in him for salvation. And so Christ goes to make a proclamation of uh, gospel to them or maybe victory. But his, his uh, audience are people, everyone who's died in general, and they're waiting for judgment. A second view is specifically spirits of those who ignored Noah's preaching before the flood. Remember, as he was building the ark, he was constructing that for over 100 years, and he was telling people that they need to, to be safe and enter the ark. And all we see going into the ark are eight people, and we'll talk about that uh, as we continue in this passage. And so another view is, is that these are specifically the people who perished during Noah's day. Uh, a third view is it's uh, spirits of people in Jesus' day who rejected the gospel message. So, so not of all time, but those during his earthly ministry who rejected him. And now he's making proclamation to them in a sense saying, see, look, at, I told you I was the Messiah. John said I was a lamb of God. I am who I am. And you were sadly mistaken. Um, the fourth view isn't human at all. The fourth view says that this is a reference to fallen angels or to demons. And this is the view that I hold, that these are, are demons that are in prison. These are not the spirits of humans. Uh, these are fallen angels. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for that. When you, when you look here at the, the, um, the language, the, the term pneumason for these spirits, it's one that is, is not used in the New Testament to describe the spirits of human beings. And so when you're looking at the human spirit, uh, sukai, is, is usually used, not pneumason. And so when you look at that, you're saying, this would be odd for Peter to use a term that is not often used to identify the spirit of man. Okay. Uh, but also, if you take a look at other passages, there are passages in the New Testament that show us that there are angels in prison waiting for final judgment. And some of them connect them to the days of Noah. Take a look at Jude, uh, Jude 6 and 7. Jude 6, we see, let's start in verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, uh, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Uh, and so as we look at that, we see here there is a direct reference to angels who didn't keep the proper abode. They went out of bounds. There is a realm where the angels are supposed to, to, to live and, and dwell and do their work, whether they are the, the angels of God or the fallen angels. And we look here, and, and these angels, they did not keep their proper abode. 
They, they, they cross the line in some way where a specific group of angels is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Take a look also at uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 and look at verse 4. Second Peter chapter 2. Uh, Peter is talking about false prophets and the judgment that will come to them. We see that in verses 1 through 3. And then he says here, For if God, in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and he goes on and on to talk about that God's not going to let this, this sin go unpunished. But when you go back and you look at this, Peter specifically mentions these angels who were cast into this darkness, committed them to pits of darkness. And then in that next verse, he mentions Noah and mentions those in the days of Noah. And so when you're looking at Jude 6 and 7, and you're looking at 2 Peter chapter uh, 2, verse 4 and following, and you go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, there is a lot of evidence for us to say these are all the same spirits. These are all the same angels, or at least they all fall in that same category of crossing a line that, that demanded that there is a, a separate punishment for them. Uh, if you think about, um, uh, I believe it is, is Luke, Luke chapter 8, I think that's what we read yesterday actually during our men's breakfast, and you see here these demons that are terrified of being thrown into an abyss. Okay. Luke chapter 8, this is uh, the demoniac and the garrisons. If you look at verse 31, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. They didn't want to be thrown into a pit. And so they say, throw us into, cast us into, allow us to go into this herd of swine. But we don't want to go into the pit. We don't want to go there, Jesus, Son of God, Holy One. Please, in a sense, have mercy on our wretched souls. Let us go into these pigs instead. Don't send us to the abyss. So when you're looking at passages like Luke 8, and you're looking at Jude 6 and 7, and 2 Peter 2, 4, um, then there seems to be the understanding that these are angels who have fallen. Fallen angels, demons, who have left their proper abode and specifically committed an act of disobedience. Peter is very clear about that if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. He made a proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And so we see here uh, these spirits in this prison where Christ was making a proclamation of victory, those spirits were around and actively disobedient during Noah's day. So what do we see happening in Noah's day that would have been a great act of disobedience that just might be a reference to fallen angels? Go back to Genesis chapter 6. And that takes us to page 3, the very top uh, that begins with another key to understanding the identity of these spirits is the reference to the days of Noah. And uh, there we're going to look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Genesis 
Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God uh, came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Then the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so when we look at this, we read a little bit uh, more than just uh, verse 5. We finished up through verse uh, 8 here. But we see that that sin is just running rampant on the face of the earth. That God's not going to tolerate it, but adding to the sin of man are these sons of God. And these sons of God have taken daughters of men, and they're having children with them. And, and that is an abomination to God. That is not acceptable to God. And so God says he's bringing judgment. And, and so when we look at this, and even here, when you look at Genesis 6, verses 1 through 5, there is a lot of debate about the identity of the sons of man. Uh, and, and probably as much as we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, there's a lot of different views there. When we talk about these, these sons of God who are going into the daughters of, of men, uh, one view, if you look at um, your handout, uh, one view is that these are, uh, this is a comparison of, of ungodly men with godly women. Uh, or actually, a, a godly men with ungodly women. That's what it would be. And the, the godly man, uh, many refer to them as the, the sons of Seth, the descendants of Seth. That, I remember uh, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and uh, Cain rose up and killed Abel, and then they had another child, Seth, and, and Eve probably thought he was going to be the son of promise, this great seed that would crush the head of the serpent. He wasn't, but uh, Seth was, we understand that you know, he was a, a, not a man like Cain. He was a godly man. Uh, and so as we look at this, many see this as a reference to the descendants of Seth, and they are marrying ungodly women. Uh, but when you look at this, uh, it's interesting. When you, when you look at the, the term sons of God, there, there are just a few, maybe less than five. I, I, I wrote a, a paper on this in seminary, and there's just a handful of terms where sons of God refers to humans as opposed to angels. They're almost always a reference to angelic beings. And there's a few other passages where maybe it refers to a human, but not likely. But it's almost always a reference in the Old Testament to angels, the messengers of God. And so as you're looking at that part of it, looking at how it's used in the Old Testament, and looking at the contrast, these sons of God and the daughters of men, you see here that this is really talking more of not a, a, a righteous human with a wicked human, union it's talking about inhuman with human and, and so if these, these these sons of god in genesis chapter 6 are the same uh, spirits referred to or the angels referred to in first peter 3 in jude in second peter 2 then that would mean that the identity of these sons of god in genesis 6 are fallen angels 
and that these fallen angels somehow are having children with these women. Now, without getting into all of the study there, it would basically be, many see it as a demon possession. We understand that angels are not given into marriage. They don't procreate. They don't reproduce the way humans do. There's a fixed amount of angels that God has created. They can't come down and, and cross those boundaries that God will not allow. But they can possess human beings. We see that in Luke chapter 8 with the demoniac and the Gerasenes. We see that throughout Scripture where Satan you know, entered into Judas and then Judas betrays Christ. So what we're looking at here is, is those who hold the view that these are fallen angels in Genesis 6 as well as 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, is that, that these angels uh, were, were kind of going on this rogue mission, if you will, trying to stop the seed from being born. And that perhaps their intent was to, to so uh, wickedly corrupt human race where they would be influenced by these demon-possessed fathers, that perhaps somehow they could stop the plan of salvation. Again, we can't be dogmatic because we're not given all those details, whether it's in Genesis or 1 Peter or Jude or 2 Peter, but we understand that what they did was they crossed the line. They went beyond the boundaries of where they were supposed to work. And even here on earth, I mean, Satan is given limited domain. He is the prince of the power of the air. He's, he's the god of this world. We would say little g. So he has authority. He has power. He certainly can do more than we can as human beings, but there are limits that God has sent, and these angels have crossed those limits. And, and so if we look at all of these puzzle pieces and put them together, it, it seems very possible that what Peter is, is referring to are these sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. And that when these sons of God tried to corrupt the human race by, by um, taking human you know, women and having children with them, their offspring, we know they did because it's right here in Genesis, they bore children to them, then, then Peter is saying that these demons, this group of, of demons of Satan, they are kept in a special prison. There were other demons, other fallen angels who are roaming and working and, and, and they will be working until the day that, that God cast them into the lake of fire. But these demons, they're bound. They're imprisoned. They're not going anywhere. And Christ is going to make a proclamation that they could not stop the plan of salvation. They could not stop God's mercy and forgiveness and grace uh, as he intended it to be given to fallen man through his son, Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, uh, it seems that I think the strongest view uh, for the identity of these spirits in 1 Peter 3 connects with Jude, 2 Peter 2, Genesis chapter 6, and they are fallen angels. They are not human spirits. Now, if we, we continue, we look at the location of these spirits. Well, okay, if Christ's spirit, uh, he goes down, he makes proclamation. It's a proclamation of victory. He's proclaiming this victory to fallen angels. Well, then where are they? Where is this prison? There's another question. That's why I mentioned when we began, there are so many different views, so many things to consider when you come to this passage. That's why Luther says, I don't know for certainty just what Peter means. I mean, it's really a challenging text. Um, so where were these spirits? We know they were imprisoned, but exactly where was this prison? 
as we look and, and we see here, there isn't much information from Peter, just that he went to make proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, let me just say this, and, and Pastor Scott and I have talked about this. I mean, I think as long as maybe a month ago we started talking about this because he knew he was going to be addressing uh, the afterlife in the Old Testament when he was uh, preaching through Samuel and, and addressing uh, when the witch of Endor calls up Samuel. Where was he? Where did he come from? Was that really Samuel? And if it was, how did he come back? And where was he at that time? And he says, hey, I don't want to cross over with you know, your territory. I know you're coming to this, and let's just see where we are. So I'm going to say this. I'm going to cover this briefly, and I would encourage you, if you have not watched that uh, uh, study by Pastor Scott, it's called Afterlife in the Olden Times, uh, and, and that's a cross-reference to 1 Samuel 28. Uh, that's actually on the, the, the very last uh, uh, statement here on this the bottom of page three has that for you that is on our youtube page i would encourage you to watch that because uh, he gives some information some of it that i will share and then a little more and so hopefully between the two of us you will have a, an understanding of where this is but uh, what i can say is that with the various views i think we agree that when we're looking at the afterlife here where this prison is uh, it is in what would be known as um, sheol or, or um, uh, Hades. And so as we're looking at that, let's look at the location of the imprisoned spirits. So it's continuing on in Peter's explanation of Christ's proclamation of victory. Uh, there's another question. Where were these spirits? Once again, there's different views. Uh, and Peter just uses the term uh, that describes a place where captives are kept or a prison. He doesn't give us a very specific uh, location. Now, when you're looking at the, the main views here, the main views are that, that uh, Hades is what we're talking about here, or uh, a place called Tartarus. And so I'll, we'll talk about both of those uh, this morning. In the Old Testament, Sheol, Sheol is understood as kind of a, a place or abode of the dead. Okay? And, and so that's kind of where you go after death. I'm going down to Sheol. So we see that throughout the Old Testament. Now, it is interesting when you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, when Sheol appears, Hades is the word that is used as the Greek equivalent. And so when we talk about Hades or Sheol, we're talking about the same place that's referenced in the Old Testament. So we don't want confusion there, but that's what we see there. Both terms refer one in Hebrew, one in Greek, and that's talking about that general place of those after they have died. This is not to be confused with hell. Uh, hell, uh, which the Greek term there is Gehenna, when you look at hell in the New Testament, uh, it, it's always used to describe a place of suffering and judgment where only the unrighteous dwell. Okay, that's where the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, that's where the, the worm never dies and the flame is never quenched. And it's better to go into, you know, uh, um, you want to, to let, actually, let's just go to some passages here. Uh, I have a few. We won't go through all of them, but take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at chap Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30. This is uh, talking about um, where it says, you've, you've heard that it's, uh, you shall not commit adultery. He says, and I say, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery in her heart. And then he says, you've got to take these evasive actions. Be very drastic in trying to avoid this. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. 
For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose uh, one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And so clearly, Christ says, you don't want to end up here. It's better to be maimed and lose a limb or lose an eye than end up there in hell. Right? Uh, look at uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-three. Let's see, is that right, Matthew? Oh, I'm sorry, twenty-three thirty-three, twenty-three thirty-three. You see here, as Christ is uh, proclaiming these eight woes to these Pharisees, uh, you look at verse, start in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you were the sons of those who murdered the prophets, Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? When we look at hell, hell is not a a kind of a a neutral, general place of rest in the afterlife. Hell is a place of condemnation. Sheol or Hades, uh, we don't see that in Scripture. Uh, there, There is evidence, there's enough where we can look at it and say, it's likely that in Sheol or Hades, there are what we would call compartments. One area for the righteous, one area for the wicked. And, and that they are there waiting for that, that uh, transfer, if you will, to, to heaven or to hell and ultimately to the lake of fire, to the eternal state. But at this point in time, they're in Sheol or in Hades and different compartments for those who are righteous or wicked as they have left this life. One key passage for this uh, is Luke chapter 16. Now, just for the sake of time, uh, I didn't reference uh, Genesis 37 or Isaiah 38, but if you look at those passages later, you'll see that there's a reference to Jacob going into Sheol or Hezekiah, uh, and then also the wicked in Psalm 9 verse 17. So there in the Old Testament, examples of both the righteous and the wicked going to Sheol. Um, But Luke chapter 16, verse 23, this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke chapter 16, and look at verse 23. We see here that there was a a man who was uh, rich. He had everything, but he rejected God. Then you had a man, Lazarus, who had nothing, but he was a lover of God. And both men die. And when both men die, they wake up in in two very different places, but they are close enough where there's actually an understanding that one is in paradise, the other is in torment. If you look at verse 22, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. And then it goes on to say, well, you had your opportunity. You had it in life. You don't have it now. There's no comfort for you. And he says, well, send back someone from the dead. Warn my family and friends. He says, even if we sent back someone from the dead, they will not listen. They have God's word. They've had the prophets. 
So here, when you look at this, in this parable, and we understand parables are these word pictures, these stories that Christ uses to present uh, a spiritual truth. But, but if this is a reference, and Christ specifically uses the term Hades here, this man wakes up in Hades, wakes up in Sheol, and he is able to see that on that side, in that compartment, if you will, the, the, the Lazarus is in paradise. He's there with Abraham. He's not in torment, but not so for the rich man. He is in a place of torment, and he can't escape. And so this is uh, one of the passages where we look at it and say, well, that, that place of the afterlife, if we're looking at Sheol or Hades, it seems like both the righteous and wicked are there, but they are in different places there. And, and they are experiencing different things. So if this is the, the compartments of, of, of Hades or Sheol, Christ is making his victory proclamation to those spirits who are in that place of torment in Sheol. Now, not everyone believes that that is the same place. Some see a, even a different compartment, if you will, a place that is reserved for the worst of offenders. You know, sometimes people make the, the reference like, you know, that, you know uh, the, the hottest place in hell is reserved for those people, meaning that some people deserve hell, but those really deserve it, and they're going to get the worst of the worst. That's kind of the idea here, and this is where we come to the term Tartarus. Okay? Tartarus... Uh, is a, a Greek term, and in Greek mythology, Tartarus was known as a place of punishment lower than Hades. Like, there's Hades, and then there's Tartarus. And this is where really bad offenders were thrown into. That those who really offended the Greek gods, they were sent to Tartarus. Kind of like the hell of hells. And so it is interesting because if you, if, if you look at that, and of course we don't base our theology off of Greek mythology, okay? but it is interesting. Take a look at um, 2 Peter. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment, the word that Peter uses there for these pits of darkness is Tartaru. He uses the Greek term Tartarus to describe this. Now, I don't think that Peter is saying that we believe Tartarus is real and Greek mythology has credibility and, and they, they merge together with, with you know, Christianity. But remember, Peter is writing to primarily a Gentile audience. And if he's writing to a Gentile audience, he will often use terms and, and references, phrases that will connect with them. And so to say these angels who did not keep their proper abode and God cast them out and he sent them to these pits of darkness reserved for judgment, he would say he, it's like he sent them to Tartarus. And in their minds they would think, wow, these angels were really bad. Because Tartarus, we know, are for those who offend the gods. That's what we've learned in Greek mythology. That the worst offenders are sent there by the Greek gods. And so again, Peter, I don't think, is giving any credibility here to, to Greek mythology, but he is making that connection in the minds of his readers that these angels, these spirits, God did not spare them, but instead he cast them to a place of great punishment for the worst of offenders. And remember, there are still demons roaming this earth, and there are those who are imprisoned and who cannot escape. And so if we're thinking about this abyss, and just again for the sake of time, 
We don't have time to go there, but when you look at, at Revelation 20, Satan is cast into the abyss, and he's locked up for a thousand years. The demons in Luke chapter 8, they are afraid of being cast into the abyss. They don't want to be thrown into that place of torment and darkness. And when Peter talks about this abyss, and he uses Tartaru, it's very possible that this is a reference to a compartment in Sheol reserved for these fallen angels, not reserved for the spirits of fallen man. And so if Sheol, if the, if the correct understanding of this place of the afterlife is Sheol or Hades, there would be a compartment for the righteous, a compartment for the unrighteous human souls or spirits, and then this place of prison for the fallen angels. Again, we cannot be dogmatic, but that seems to make sense when we go from Genesis to Revelation and study the issue. So as we wrap it up, just a reminder, um, you know, watch Pastor Scott's message, Afterlife in the Olden Times. That will give you more information, and that will actually give you some insight into where Samuel was and uh, the witch of Endor calling him up. And then I'll leave you with this as we close out with Peter David's comment at the bottom. Wherever this prison is located, Peter is referring to Jesus' resurrection triumph, vindicating the justice of God and sealing the fate of the fallen angels as he ascends to heaven. And so David's here would take the resurrection view and not a quickening view. But again, the point is, it's a victory proclamation. Wherever this prison is, is not as important as the fact that Christ is making a victory proclamation to those who try to thwart the plan of salvation. He is victorious. He is one. Satan is crushed. And we as God's people are to take great comfort in that, knowing that when we go through times of suffering, uh, God is fully aware of it. He has a great plan and purpose for it and in the end the way Christ comes through and is glorified and is honored we will also receive that glory and honor and praise when we see him in his second coming when he welcomes us and and when we spend the rest of eternity with him and so that's I think Peter's main point uh, that we take great comfort and have assurance when we are experiencing times of suffering let me close in prayer and then we will be dismissed Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for allowing us to go through this very important and, and, and uh, rich and challenging passage. And I pray that we uh, walk away with more answers and with more hope and certainty than questions. And we know that there are times, Lord, where we just don't have all the answers. And, and as human beings, we never will. And even when we're in your presence, we won't be omniscient. But we do understand that uh, Christ is victorious and that nothing could stop the plan of salvation. And we thank you for that because we are recipients of that salvation. We pray that you will just continue to strengthen us, Lord, encourage us, and, and give us the desire and the opportunity to proclaim that Christ is victorious and that he will give victory over sin and Satan and death to all those who call upon his name. We thank and we praise you in Christ's name.